Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a very funny comedian on Root Tales of Magic and Oh, These, Those Stars of Space, in addition to being a talented artist who's worked on shows like Steven Universe, The Venture Bros, and even the character lead for Bird Girl on Adult Swim. Ah! Please welcome Carly Minardo. Who is she? <laughs> Truly a multi-hyphenate. We'd love to see it. A double threat by any standard. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on the show. I had to laugh when you invited me because my husband, Chris Hastings, has already done an episode and had a great time, but I'm famously scared of everything. (laughs) And I was just like, I don't know what I could possibly pick. But here we are. Here we, we are. We found something. We found, we found several something. somethings, even. You had plenty of options that all would have worked great, but I'm very excited about today's. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that experience with horror? Was there a big one that stands out as like scaring you away from the genre in your childhood or just a general low-grade anxiety <laughs> about it? <laughs> you know, I don't recall. I, I mean, I, I was easily spooked by movies and TV when I was a kid. I actually think there's probably a part of me that's really fascinated by it. It just doesn't trust that part of herself. <laughs> but I do remember I used to hide from the, my sister. I have a twin sister and she and I used to hide from the trick-or-treaters every Halloween because we hated. <laughs> to me, it just felt like some sort of dream world had like broken down the walls and it was mm. invading my reality. And Halloween was this horrifying <laughs> moment where like nightmares were knocking at my door and I, I wanted it to be over and to feel like things weren't like night on bald mountain anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty metal way to look at Halloween. Hell say. yeah. <laughs> I'm actually amazing. <laughs> I like cried at the grudge. I went to see the American Sarah Michelle Geller <laughs> version of the grudge in theaters with my boyfriend at the time and I was like sobbing. I had to leave and go <laughs> wait in the hallway for it to be over. And that I believe is classically seen as like not a particularly effective I think it's okay. I mean look, it's got it's got some good jumps in there. The hand coming out of the head. That's okay, classic. Yeah, we don't, have to, we don't even have to talk about it. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, probably fine. Great point. Great yeah. point. <laughs> it's it's frustrating because I I know I'm missing out on a lot of really good stuff, but I just I I think I, I think my imagination likes to just play sort of mad libs with it and like mm-hmm. imagine like kind of get ahead of the film and and guess what horrible thing is coming and it's either right and worse than what they're going to show me or like they show me something I couldn't have even conceived of. <laughs> so it's just like I got to I got to just um, thread the needle. Yeah, I can't I can't <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> Is there a specific subgenre that does help you get into it more easily? Are you like, "Oh, I do like witches and generally it's less like jump out at you kind of scares with that sort of thing." It's so funny that you mentioned witches cuz witches I did see as a kid and it did scare the hell out of me and I do I don't like any time like a person's face is like spoiler for witches gets fucked up big time that <laughs> that scares me a lot. I don't like d- long jaws and stuff like that. So like body horror is a big no-no for me, but I do like at least a couple comedy horror films. Like I I love Shaun of the Dead. There are some things I have to like close my eyes for, but I do it's one of my favorite movies. Hell yeah. We've talked about it before. It's a fine line between horror and comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found a very fun quote from Steve King where he said, as far as I know, the only difference is it starts being horror and stops being humor when it stops being somebody else and starts being you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a sidebar, but 
there's an episode of Seinfeld. Are you a Seinfeld watcher? It's, I'll be honest, it's not my favorite show. I have okay. seen a couple here and there, but certainly I'm sure there are Seinfeld fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, out there and in here, I, I grew up, I loved it. There is an episode of Seinfeld where this character, Crazy Joe Davola, shows up and he's genuinely off-putting and terrifying. <laughs> and I recently like got served up a link that I clicked that was like... <laughs> Which episode of Seinfeld do fans agree is like the scariest and most off-putting and it's the crazy Joe Davola. It's go. I think it's called the opera. And I think there is something about it like in this episode, this character is kind of cornering Elaine in a way that like just felt like way too real yeah. and familiar oh. <laughs> to viewers. And it's like, yeah, this isn't funny anymore. This just feels like a genuinely scary thing to be happening. So Oh man. It sounds yeah. like it. Yeah. So Stephen King is right. That's my long way yeah. of saying that. <laughs> Well, today we're talking about a great horror comedy. It was a perfect segue. You nailed it. (laughs) Very exciting one. And a movie that I personally watched a lot growing up. A wonderful spoof and a success on its own merits, I think. Young Frankenstein from 1974. The 27th film adaptation of the novel by Mary Shelley. (laughs) The 27th? Yes. And there have been more since then. Wow. And that includes like derivative son of, bride of, exactly, friend of, exactly. friend You're of right. Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein's second cousin who's a little green. <laughs> but mostly normal. Yeah. He might just be a little sick. <laughs> Give him a Pepto and he'll be fine. <laughs> I also grew up watching it. It was oft quoted in my home. Oh, yeah. I watched it again last night to freshen up and... I told my husband, like, it is taking every ounce of self-control to not just talk all along with the movie. It's great. It really is. This is, uh, 1974 is the same year that Blazing Saddles came out. A two-movie year, the likes of which no director has had since Victor Fleming's (laughs) 1939, where he premiered both The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. Whoa! Yeah. Not a fan of a short movie, that guy. No, not, not at all. My man loves to put you in your seat. (laughs) (laughs) And stay there. Yeah. Young Frankenstein. We love it. A few resources that I checked out that were really great and that might be of interest to people who love this movie included, among others, interviews with Mel and Jean from the 1998 Spring Scenario, The Art of Screenwriting magazine, (laughs) which was very good. A commentary on the 40th anniversary disc from Mel, but most enjoyably, I also listened to Mel Brooks read Young Frankenstein, the story of the making of the film, a Mel Brooks book by Mel Brooks, (laughs) (laughs) which first off, great title. But also beyond that, falling within the acceptable range of self-aggrandizement to be endearing, plus has a lot of input from other actors and producers and whatnot who agreed that despite Mel's image as a goof, he's an incredibly hard worker and extremely attentive to the actors and the details. And these details are crucial for this movie. Because as he himself said, you have to really know a genre in order to make fun of it. And to really know it, you gotta love it. Mm-hmm. And I think that really comes through in this movie. You know, his, his passion for it is on uh, is rubber stamped across the, the screen. Yeah. I'm curious if, so you are a horror fan. And I'm curious if like classic 30s horror monster movies is something that you also love. Yeah, I do. I love the Universal classics in particular. I like some of the Hammer stuff as well, but those Universal originals are just like right up my alley, especially because I actually was a very scared kid as well. And (laughs) and so it helps me. It helped me especially like getting into the genre 
to have stuff that like I could see why it might have been scary once upon a time, but mm-hmm. now is so far removed from like just like the general sensibility of what scariness is. Yeah. That I could watch it at more of a remove. And stuff like that, even stuff like some of the 80s slashers that are a little more like the visual style of it is more ancient (laughs) than you might expect. (laughs) And having that sort of remove, I think, was helpful to me. And so there is a little bit of like... Obviously, I wasn't around in the 30s, but like a little bit of nostalgia for like them getting started and having to really develop these characters in a way that they hadn't. You know, one of my favorite like things about horror in general is that in the very first Dracula, the 1931 version, he's got like a pet armadillo and a bee (laughs) that has its own coffin and stuff. And it's like just a great menagerie of animals because they were like, we need him to have exotic pets. So he's going to have an armadillo and a possum. Wow. That is endearing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really fun. I, I love them sort of using these very innocent kind of scare tactics that uh, just really work for me. They're a lot of fun. Well, it's also cool because it's so tied to the... I'm going to talk out of my ass now. But like, it's very early on still in terms of motion picture history. Yeah. So it's interesting to see them establishing these visual moving... Um, not tropes, but yeah, I guess tropes, like these enduring symbols and kind of tactics uh, that would become iconic, you know, yeah. as as horror in quotes. But I'm curious, like as a as a person who loves horror as much as as you do, when do you think it stopped being genuinely scary? Because I agree <laughs> with you. I think I probably could hang with the Universal monsters and not be freaked out by them. But at some yeah. point, they were probably terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really good question. That's a great I mean, it's a great question. I don't know. It might be it might be completely individual. Maybe there are people out there who are still scared by the classics, but I think that it's like kind of goes in the waves of technique mm. where it's like when things are in black and white and then suddenly things are in color, it feels like a pretty big distinction point between the two. Okay. And then when the effects start looking like blood instead of like red paint or whatever, you know, that's another step to being like, Oh, I was once scared of blood feast, but now it's <laughs> it's like, it's, I see it for the B movie that it is okay, kind of thing. So I think that like, as each methodology progresses, that that kind of impacts the general population's view of it as scary or not. Interesting. So it's almost tied to, what we are willing to accept as real right. within the framework of a motion picture. So I don't know why I'm saying motion picture like I'm an old time radio host. <laughs> you know, a kinetoscope. A talkie. <laughs> um, yeah, like just, you know, when all there were were black and white films, that was kind of the baseline you accepted. But once we progressed past that into color, I think maybe, yeah, maybe that that the 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 veil was lifted and that yeah. no longer felt as effective because it no longer felt as real perhaps sure i mean even applying it to another medium you think about when like mario 64 came out and you're like this is the best video games we'll ever look <laughs> i know i know oh my goodness oh my gosh and now you look back and you're like oh yeah, I see all of the pixels and polygons that the are the pixels are here. as big as my hand. <laughs> <laughs> the 
exactly. So, uh, so who knows? I mean, if anyone else has any thoughts, I'd be curious to hear it. So reach out and let call us know what now. you think. Call now. Yeah, call in. Call in. <laughs> call in uh, now. I'm sure, I'm sure the phones will be positively a buzz. <laughs> the ladies are the ladies <laughs> at the phones are waiting. <laughs> the gals. Yep. So how how I'm, I'm like asking you questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm interviewing you. How old are you when you? Saw it for the first time. Do you remember Young Frankenstein? Oh man, I d- I don't remember when I saw it for the first time because this is one of my dad's favorite movies, and yeah. so it's yeah. just been like a constant presence in my house. Yes, even before like when I think about getting into horror, this this didn't even cross my mind as something that like I would have to have gotten into as part of being horror because it was just there all the time. Uh huh. And and it is so funny, you know. I mean, it's kind of pertinent to what we were talking about. Mel Brooks was terrified of Frankenstein, like the, the movie Frankenstein. <laughs> and so I think that seeing it and then having to kind of work with Gene, who sees it as like this very tragic story, mm. you really get, I think, both of their influences, pulling it into an interesting way that I don't want to say elevates it out of horror, because I think that it's, I don't think that horror is something necessarily to be elevated out of, but I think that it is at the very least making the horror elements not as solely the focus mm. you know the romantic melodrama and the gothic stuff that's in this movie is also there and of course the comedy who i mean <laughs> lest we forget lest we forget and I, it's so funny that you said that because i was thinking the the same thing about the comedy of the movie which is my like facet of it that I'm the most excited about. Same as you were saying about horror, I would not say that comedy is something low that you can elevate something out of. But I do think that there is like a tremendous heart to the story that does, you know, I recently rewatched Dracula Dead and Loving It, and it, I, I still think it's really funny, but it's just not as strong as, a, have it. as an as an entity, and I think a lot of that is probably thanks to Gene Wilder and what he brought to the the screenplay, and certainly his performance is so wonderful. But I uh, I actually really liked the the novel when I read it in school, and I was kind of disappointed. I I like Young Frankenstein is still my favorite adaptation of the story because we get to see him do it right like this time he does it right this time he loves his creation yeah. and he helps and he helps him live a good life and like yes. uh like it, it's what a relief you know <laughs> every time you read or see a production of Romeo and Juliet and you're like maybe this time they won't be so stupid like the, the Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder gave us that version of Frankenstein which i think is a, just another satisfying element to the movie. Definitely. I mean, Gene has said that he got into writing because he loved, he wanted to change the endings of stories. And he, <laughs> really? Yeah. And, and this is one of them where he, he sees the tragic figure. He sees how he can, how it could have gone another way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that uh, it is great. Oh, I love that. Hell love yeah. It. So Mel was five when Frankenstein came out, and he saw it with his brother because their father had died of tuberculosis three years prior, so his mom needed to work, and she forced his brother to take Mel. And he was like, I'm going to see Frankenstein, and he might get scared. (laughs) And his mom did the Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive, like, I don't care. I don't care. care. (laughs) (laughs) And Mel said it was the scariest thing he ever saw. Oh, Yeah, this little five-year-old. And it was a heat wave in New York that week. 
And so the windows were open, and he was so scared that he wanted them closed anyway, because if you leave the window open, he'll eat me, he said. His mom was like, I'm not closing the window in 102 degree heat. And so, so her way of comforting him was being like, Transylvania isn't even near the ocean. So you think this guy is going to make his way to Odessa, take a boat across the ocean, specifically to New York, navigate the subway system, pay for all that passage when monsters don't even carry money. (laughs) Crucial. Crucial. Then climb in your window after ignoring the windows of everyone else who has their windows open, including the people on the first floor when we're on the third. This is the sort of talking down that I would need as a child, by the way. Yeah, I, hey, he said it worked and, and that uh, he and his friends were still very scared of the monster, but at least that they could sleep through the uh, through the terror and, and that they played Frankenstein very often. He was very clear that they didn't make the distinction between the scientist and the monster at the time. So. Well, even geniuses are wrong sometimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but interestingly, Gene Wilder was the one who actually came up with the concept. The great-grandson of Frankenstein working as a, quote, dental assistant, some silly job vaguely connected to science. And he ends up inheriting his great-grandfather's estate, and once he steps onto Transylvanian soil, can't resist the workings of the mad gene that gets activated. And it had already been percolating when Gene's agent started representing Marty Feldman and Peter Boyle as well. And so he like calls up Gene and he's just like, hey, do you have anything for the three of you? And there was a funny part in the interview where he talks about being like... Wow, what a great way to like <laughs> start a project. I guess I actually do have something. <laughs> like, I mean, that's like not to compare, you know, local improv teams to <laughs> Young Frankenstein, <laughs> but that that happens all the time. You get thrown in the mix with people that you you didn't necessarily like choose, mm-hmm. and then magic can totally happen from that. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! And Mel's version about what happens next is that they're working on Blazing Saddles when Gene tells Mel about his idea for Young Frankenstein. And when Mel asks him what his dream for the movie is, Gene said, for you to help me write this and direct it. And Mel said, whoa, that'll cost you. Got any money? (laughs) (laughs) And at this point, the producers was an Oscar winner, but it didn't make any money. And 12 chairs made even less. And Gene wasn't really a household name yet, despite having played Leo Bloom and Willy Wonka for some high-profile work. So he said, I've got $57. (laughs) And Mel said, I'll take that as a down payment. And uh, they agreed to work on it, which was a big deal since Mel didn't really work on things he didn't conceive. Wow. Is this the only film that he co-wrote with somebody? Well, no, he co-wrote, but this one felt particularly collaborative. Uh, Gene's version is a little less bombastic. (laughs) He says he showed Mel the initial concept, and Mel was like, that's cute, kid. Keep at it. (laughs) (laughs) And he kind of put it away until the question from his agent, Mike Metavoy, where he, like, brushed it off, but then added the scene where Marty picks up Gene at the station. And Mike helped sell this to Columbia, but they wanted Mel, who was kind of waffling on it. And so the initial deal was that he would take a look and give notes every 20 pages or so until they finished the first draft when Columbia would make a final decision on producing it or not. So once Brooks agreed to co-write and direct, they tried to get in the same brainwaves as Mary Shelley, they said. (laughs) This involved drinking a bunch of Earl Grey tea and drinking digestive English crackers. Ooh. Yeah. And Gene wrote, and he wrote these pages, and Mel would come in, he'd punch it up for about seven months to get it fully polished. Uh, Every evening after filming Blazing Saddles, they'd they'd hang out. And Gene said the only time that they actually sat down and wrote together was on the creation scenes, the from this stinking bit 
bit of slime and whatnot. Mm. Everything else was kind of just like first draft. Mel comes in, takes a look at it, says, here's what I think is working. Here, like, where is this going? What's the next steps? And then they would sort of flesh out that idea, move on to the next, like, sort of uh, concept where he would uh, repeat the process pretty much every 20 pages. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah. One version is a little spicier than another. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have the sizzle to sell the the steak. (laughs) I don't want a quiet steak. (laughs) Everybody looks when the fajitas come in. I had fajitas for dinner. That's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) Gene also said that it is very little improvisation, although not none. And he had this interesting quote, which I thought was really interesting. I just said interesting twice. That's how good it is. (laughs) (laughs) It must be true. Yeah, He said, what Mel taught me about screenwriting was that the first draft is your concept. Then get reactions, take a sledgehammer and hit all the columns to see what's weak. If it gives, throw it out. Then the second draft is the building of the new columns that hold the building up. Then the third draft is going over each scene. The fourth is going over each speech. The fifth is the shooting script. And the sixth is the editing process. And so to have it kind of broken out that way, I think is a pretty interesting way of looking at it. To go back and look specifically through like the dialogue and, and the monologues and everything for one of the drafts and just focus on that is pretty interesting. There it is again. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I I like that because it kind of foregrounds the idea that this is going to change with every step of the process and that that's Mm -hmm. a good thing and that's inherent to the process and that it's not something, something to be scared of because I think it's very easy, especially when you're starting out creatively, to get very married to your early drafts of things. Oh, yeah. Mel said, he must have said, kill your darlings like five times during all the stuff that I was (laughs) The ground was littered with darlings. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously there's a huge influence from James Whale's Universal Classics. It takes huge chunks of Bride in particular, which in preparation for this, I also rewatched Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, just because I love those movies. And I thought it was pretty interesting how much deliberate comedy is in Bride of Frankenstein as well. Yeah, there's like a mad scientist character who is pretty over the top and he says a couple of things are his one weakness. (laughs) 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 And there's Una O'Connor's Minnie who plays the character that Frau Blucher is imitating in style. Okay. But the list of influences does extend beyond the most obvious Universal 30s adaptations with both of the gentlemen specifically mentioning Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. the slapstick therein, which is also a pretty fun movie. And Son of Frankenstein is being in the mix as well, especially for the one-armed inspector. But Wilder said, I watched Ghost of Frankenstein and Frankenstein returned and they didn't do shit for me. (laughs) They are not represented in this film. (laughs) But of course, the book looms incredibly large as well, which is great because there are some real differences from from it to the original adaptation Mm. and even the later Hammer ones and whatnot. And Wales's creature wants desperately to fit in despite being an outsider. But Brooks's Frankenstein, as you said, identifies with the creature, becoming an outsider himself Mm. and rejecting the social order that's kind of represented by the frigid Elizabeth in direct contrast to the end of the 1931 movie where, spoiler alert, the monster (laughs) is supposedly killed and he says, great, I can't wait to have a real son with my new wife, Elizabeth. (laughs) I'm able to sire children, apparently. (laughs) Who 
Who knew? Who knew? And I think that this is an example of how young Frankenstein is kind of representative of post-modernity that was emerging from the art fringe in the 1970s. Art was becoming more fragmented and self-reflexive. Linda Hutchion said, uh, I thought this was a great quote. She said, I think with postmodernism and the breaking of the fixed borders between popular culture and, quote, high art, came the realization that parody was a popular mode of recovering the past, in this mm. case, past work, but at the same time making a different statement using it. Mm. Parody relies on our knowing the parodied text, right? So using popular cultural examples as parodied work that are shared by many people, across cultures even, is one way of making a work accessible, while at the same time challenging the audience to rethink that work and its ideological baggage. And as you've said, this confronts that baggage pretty dramatically. Yeah. Victor Frankenstein's lack of fatherly empathy and emotional understanding is basically the entire motivation. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And it starts off in his, you know, his grandson hates him and is ashamed of him. Exactly. And that scientific detachment is something that definitely persists through plenty of adaptations, especially the Hammer movies. But our Freddy here instinctively knows love is the only thing that can save this poor creature, he says. Yeah. And he's right. (laughs) He's right. Damn it. (laughs) This empathetic connection between creator and creation definitely comes back as a theme. So keep it in mind, listener. (laughs) Listen, write it down. (laughs) (laughs) Write it down. Post-it note right on the movie screen. But I thought it was interesting that Mel and Jean did see different focuses of the movie despite writing it together. Mm. Where Wilder really highlights how everyone in the story is misfits in search of perfect love, while Mel is interested in the way that the Frankenstein stories reflect a sort of parthenogenic rage, saying, I always thought that the monster was born out of the scientist's ego and his rage at not being able to do what any woman can do, and that Mm. is to give birth. So they're seeing this sort of love story and search for acceptance combined with the idea of fatherly dispassion and and how that can fuck somebody up big time. <laughs> it doesn't stop at the dad either. <laughs> true, very true. But, you know, seeing like, oh, Mel didn't have a father growing up, like, uh, sad to see that he's like focusing on this theme. Yeah, yeah. But exploring it very successfully, I'd say. Definitely, definitely. This also, I think, ties into the horror idea of, quote, feminine as monstrous. Mm. What it basically means is that men are scared of what they feel is a power over them in some way. And all three women in this, I think, present an aspect of it where Frank's fear is manifested as a desire to create this hypermasculine son. He wants to, he's going to be seven and change feet tall. He's going to have an enormous Schwanstucker. (laughs) Goes without saying. Exactly. But Elizabeth uses her femininity to get what she wants. Mm -hmm. Inga uses her open sexuality to pursue Frederick Frankenstein. And he's terrified of it. He's constantly like, oh, no, like, let me, I'm flustered. (laughs) Let me get out of here. And Frau Blucher is both repressed to the point of formidability as, like, the housekeeper from Rebecca, Miss Danvers, but also secretly the power behind the throne. You know, she's the lover to his grandfather. And it's interesting, I think, because all of this creates this uh, interesting dynamic where all of the women are presented as very powerful, I think, in this movie in a way where typically the adaptations of Frankenstein play up the masculinity. There's a lot of gore and viscera and, and focus on him cre- like creating the sun and the anger and heat between them. 
But in this, there are several love stories. You know, it's it's yeah. about this sort of a different perspective, I think. And these three characters that I just mentioned are played by some absolute powerhouses of comedy. Oh, my goodness. Just incredible. Terry Garr as Inga, Madeline Kahn as Elizabeth, and Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher. Just incredible work from all three. It's so cool to see a movie, especially of this time, and like see the female roles and be like, I would be thrilled to play any of these women. They're (laughs) all incredible. They really are. And Terry Garr actually said she auditioned for the role of Elizabeth initially, and Mel pulled her aside in the cattle call and looked, and he said, look, we really want Madeline Kahn for this role, but if you come back tomorrow with a German accent, you can read for Inga, his book's on love interest. And so she talked with Cher's German hairdresser during her (laughs) day job to learn the accent. (laughs) (laughs) That's all it takes. Right? One day, and and she she said that she stuffed her bra to make sure that they couldn't say that she didn't fit the role, and that would be an excuse to get rid of her. Bless. (laughs) And she knocked it out of the park, you know? She got her first speaking role, and, and it's incredible. She kills it. Absolutely. Now, Mel ran into some production issues with Columbia. They started setting a $1,750,000 budget. But more importantly, they didn't want to shoot in black and white. And Mel said, in order to work, everything around the comedy has to be real. They offered to shoot in color and then diffuse it, but Mel refused because he knew that they'd eventually release it in color anyway. Oh my goodness. He's absolutely right. They would have. Oh, yeah. Especially in other markets. He was talking about how, like, in Argentina at the time, they were just getting, like, color movies. Oh, yeah. And, like, Peru, I think, too, right? Right. And so they really were like, oh, in order to get them into these markets, it has to be color. And he was like, I'm not doing that. It's not going to be color. (laughs) And so with the help of Michael Gruskoff, they said, we need $2,200,000 for the budget. And they knew that Columbia wouldn't give them that. And so that let Alan Ladd Jr. at Fox scoop it up. And this worked out really well because they had rented the big MGM backlot, which meant not only was there space for the sets, there were also veterans who remembered doing these <gasps> movies. That's great. And as far as that quote, it's something that Mel felt pretty strongly about. He told the cast, quote, we're making a riotous comedy here, but it's got to be very sweet, very sad, and at times very scary. But above all, it's got to be real, very real. And basically, he's playing a lot with the conjunctions of separated contexts, where the comedy comes from subverted expectations, but these expectations are only established if people are lulled into treating it seriously as a version of that thing with rooted emotions. We can only laugh at things not going the way that we want for our beloved Frankenstein hero if we think we know the way it's going to go. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of what makes Edgar Wright's spoof films so satisfying Mm, yeah definitely you know the the love story between him and liz and his relationship with philip and his mother and everything all of those emotions feel real and they feel like a driving force for him whereas uh, you know when people are just being chased by zombies and it's purely a fear motivation or whatever Mm -hmm. it's it's just not as effective You, you disconnect from it yeah, and there's nothing for scaredy cats like me to enjoy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. An example of this, I think, is, uh, you know, it's funny when Leachman says, yes, he was my boyfriend. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Say it! <laughs> but they're playing it really intensely. Like, in the scene, you're like, oh, to her, this is the big reveal, is that they were dating. <laughs> one of my, oh God, one of my favorite early lines in the movie is 
one of the one of um, Frankenstein's students is pressing him on his grandfather's work and starting to list the things that he did. And, and, and Frederick's response is, yes, yes, we all know what he did. And I think that's, that's like such a sleeper hit for me. That's such an incredible response to like, oh, your grandfather's a classic monster. Um, people will be talking about him for centuries, how horrible what he did was. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we all know what he did. It's such an incredible response. Oh, my gosh. It's so funny. And the super long wait until he says cuckoo. <laughs> uh, it's just perfect but one thing that i also thought was kind of a cool production tidbit was that mel said he likes to do two takes so that he can play with tone oh. one take that's perfect that i love and then one that's slightly <laughs> over the top just in case it's neater needed in the picture puzzle of the film in the editing room if the heightened nature of it is not coming through then he can go reach for it uh, even if it didn't feel right on the day oh that's wow he knew what he was doing. Sure did. And this extended beyond the emotions. You know, they used a lot of the set from the originals, which its designer, Kenneth Strickfaden, had saved a bunch of and recreated the others that had burned up. And in the book, Mel talks about how they, like, went and talked with him, and he only wanted, like, $1,000 to rent it. And they were like, uh, that's too <laughs> low, guy. <laughs> and so they gave him 2500 instead. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, nice to just not be taking advantage of this old man. <laughs> Mel Brooks, I am available to work. <laughs> <laughs> He's still putting out stuff. He could do it. Is he? I thought his last movie was Dracula Dead and Loving It. Uh, well, I mean, he put out a, a new book recently. He could be hiring you to do some illustration or something. Mel Brooks, I am available. <laughs> the cinematography done by Gerald Hirschfeld also created the same texture of Wales' work with the glowing halos and early film transitions, your wipes and irises that look great. And they do create an old-fashioned mise-en-scene. Oh. Sorry to get French on them. Oh. <laughs> Brooks said that he made Hirschfeld watch the Whale Frankenstein films five times. Wow. (laughs) And that he was really annoyed by it at first, but that later thanked him for the experience. He has a really lovely oral history of making the movie that is available to read on the internet. Hell yeah. Their one argument related to wanting photographic verisimilitude, where Hirschfeld wanted to redo a shot because there was some shaking, but Brooks said, look, we're not really using a zoom lens. They didn't, and we won't. Let's put a camera on a dolly and trundle like James Whale. I also told him, if you want to, you can shake the camera a little while you're trundling. And he said, are you crazy? And I said, no, I want to capture the camera work of the period, which was never perfectly smooth, always a little shaky. So they compromised. They said, not too much trundling, finding a fine balance between old and new. Wow. <laughs> Everything you ever wanted to know about trundling. So much. The, a, a phrase that I had not heard before starting this research, but shake the now I know. Now yeah, we exactly. know. <laughs> when people tell that's you to new. shake the trundle, that's now you know what it means. I was going to say, that's like back in my day, you had slap in the bag, and now you got shake in the trundle. <laughs> they all mean the same thing. <laughs> Hirschfeld did have to warn a camera operator to stop laughing because he was ruining the footage. Bless. Point. Of course he was. <laughs> and Mel wound up giving people white handkerchiefs, and he said, if you feel like you're going to laugh, put this in your mouth. And then he turned around and saw a sea of handkerchiefs in mouths and was like, oh shit, we got a hit here. Oh my God, that's all I want. Yeah. 
It's a sea of handkerchiefs. <laughs> That's the dream. Telling me I'm doing a good job. <laughs> Without actually having talked to Men me. Men voluntarily <laughs> choking themselves to let me know I'm funny sounds incredible. There you go. There, there you, you go. go. The Mel Brooks approach, they call it. <laughs> Shaking the trundle. <laughs> They did wind up with a $2.4 million budget, and it was a huge success. Mel said $90 million at the box office and another $100 million in ancillary things like rental and cable, when that was still a thing that really happened and was a big, <laughs> uh, you know, but like influenced the <laughs> bottom line. <laughs> big difference now. Although it was unexpected based on the other popular offerings at the time, but it then shifted this leading to an influx of horror comedies that satirized specific styles like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, Love at First Bite, American Werewolf in London, Terror Vision, Monster Squad, and Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And Mel also, he specifically said that the black and white aspect of it helped it stand out mm. instead of hurting it. So take that, Columbia. That <laughs> you're still hurting from that one. <laughs> But none of those other movies that I just mentioned touch this for comedy, in my in my opinion, and in the opinion of the American Film Institute, who put it at number 13 of the 100 funniest American films of all time. <gasps> What's number 12? Didn't didn't write that down, unfortunately. Maybe uh, I should have, but... Wow, we'll never know. <laughs> Impossible we'll never to find know. out. They actually erased the list. The list I... ends here. <laughs> Dies with us. <laughs> I'm just curious what narrowly beat Young Frankenstein, you know? It was it was actually just the second watching of Young Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, when, now that I know the story and I'm not distracted. You start seeing like the physical jokes that yeah, are happening. Yeah, like, oh, that's really good. <laughs> the quiet laughs. Exactly, exactly. Now, before we start discussing the plot of the movie, I do want to mention a story from Brooks involving a cut prologue of the reading of the will leaving the castle to Frederick. Ah. And the problem was that it introduces the disinherited heirs and it made test audiences laugh so hard with characters that weren't coming back that in the next scene, our first scene proper, where Frankenstein, where Frankenstein at the time is doing his like scientific magic slapstick routine with Mr. Hilltop, he said that it became more of a dip than a pop. Huh. And so he said by chopping out that first scene, we gave the movie to Gene. We gave it to the star. And you can't advertise a big musical comedy and then you got to wait 20 minutes for the star to come on. It's true. It's true. And, and so this is a perfect example of having to kill your darlings. You know, he said that people loved this scene, but for the sake of the movie's uh, benefit and cohesion as a whole, had to go. Huh. Does that footage still exist? Not that I was able to find, Shoot. unfortunately. I would like to see it, but uh, I yeah. think that it might have uh, hit the actual cutting room floor. I want to see what's so funny that it almost ruined the movie. <laughs> By the way, number 12 is A Night at the Opera. Of course. Which is a bit of a try-hard response, yeah, I would right? say. Uh, we get it. <laughs> Marx Brothers Ooh, are funny. I love movies. <laughs> the older, the better. How close was it to a world war? <laughs> Yeah, Marx <laughs> yeah, Brothers. AFI. No, the Marx Brothers are great. <laughs> they are. They are good. Yeah. I uh, watched a bunch of their movies on the Criterion channel earlier this year, and I had a wonderful time. Ah! Yeah, I gotta, I'm going to have to follow in your footsteps. There you go. <laughs> 
This first scene that I was talking about, though, does then play with that cultural juxtaposition, not only by associating the serious context of a medical demonstration and the entertaining context, like a magic show and a slapstick routine, but also it does blend these older Universal films with the new tone right away. You kind of understand exactly what you're in for because it, a lot of these movies do start out with someone like doing a big medical demonstration or, mm. you know, the very first Frankenstein has someone coming out and being like, just so you know, this movie is going to be really scary. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> yes. Is it Tom Cruise? <laughs> it, it should be. It should be. <laughs> real G's, real scares. <laughs> it's Nicole Kidman. She comes out and says, somehow heartbreak feels good in this Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> She was right. She was right. Centuries later, she's right. <laughs> Her words still hold true today. And that's why we celebrate them every time we go to the movies. <laughs> Here's to you, Nicole Kidman. <laughs> part of part of a story tradition since 1931. <laughs> the originator you know, you know. of the jellyfish haircut. <laughs> But an older gentleman watches this demonstration, and he's brought back a box from the coffin of Baron von Frankenstein, and he sees Frederick not only demonstrate the difference between reflexive and voluntary nerve impulses, but also deny his heritage quite strongly, as you uh, mentioned with this student haranguing him. (laughs) (laughs) Junior Mr. Bean fella. Yeah, he's that guy. He's You're little... like, I get why Frankenstein is fucking pissed at this guy. He has Atkinson face. <laughs> he sure does. Bless him. He sure does. Yeah. It's also really funny to conclude with his like getting carried away and stabbing his thigh with a scalpel <laughs> as a point of emphasis. Oh my gosh. Emphasis. There's uh, you can see you see he in character looks at his leg almost as if to like make sure he knows where to aim <laughs> that scalpel, but he does it so in character that like it totally works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's incredible. He's incredible. He really is. And uh, he finally gets on a train to visit the estate that he's been bequeathed. And we get this amazing intro for Elizabeth, who has him <laughs> wrapped around her finger, but barely lets him touch her. And I mean, this one of my favorite jokes in this movie is when she says, taffeta, darling, and he's like in happy delirium, and he yeah. just says, taffeta, sweetheart. <laughs> I love that she dodges his, he blows her a kiss, and she's like, Ugh! she dodges so it. So funny, so oh funny. That was improvised by her. What? Well, that was her. She was, I'm going to use the word genius a lot. She She is a genius. She was a genius. She really was. This whole scene, they said, was semi-improvised, that they got to the like platform and worked it out in advance, but that this was a scene that really was just Madeline and Jean. And I mean, you you do get to see two comedic geniuses at work. It's a perfect scene. Well, it's funny. I don't want to jump the gun talking about this too quickly, but one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about with this movie is the concept of game, which is a, Mm. is a, a comedy construct that Mm -hmm. is very wonky and annoying. And I will explain it in a way that will piss off UCB people. But (laughs) that scene, just bear in mind, we will return to it because it is pure pattern game and it's really strong and really funny. He arrives in Transylvania. Apparently the kid who offers him a shoe shine was actually 17, which shocked me. Whoa. (laughs) Bad luck. (laughs) He said, we shot at night and we couldn't keep a kid up. So that's a 17-year-old who's supposed to look like a child. And he does. Oh, my. (laughs) Wow. And he's picked up by Igor, not Igor. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing performance by Marty Feldman doing this sort of Lear-style fool meant to reflect human folly. (laughs) 
great introduction where he says, my grandfather used to work for your grandfather. Of course, rates have gone up. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a hollow hump on Igor's back (laughs) that switches sides throughout the movie, which is very funny. But his blind denial of its existence connects Igor and Frankenstein through his denial of his heritage. And one thing that was in the first draft that didn't make it was that Dracula was originally at station two. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And Gene was like, he was sad about it because it, it was his idea. But Mel felt that it was too distracting and that people would be waiting for him to show up again. And unfortunately, I am inclined to agree. I actually that, think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I'm pissed that he was right about it. Yeah. Because it would have been great to have him in there. But. If you see Dracula one time at the train station, you're like, obviously Dracula's coming back. Where's he going? Yeah. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Or at least we want to see where he went. Yeah. Why is he taking the train? (laughs) He can fly. He can fly. The walk this way line is an old joke that Marty did to make the crew laugh. The original vaudeville version goes, a man goes into a pharmacy and he says, I need some talcum powder. My hemorrhoids are killing me. And the pharmacist says, walk this way. And the guy responds, if I could walk that way, I wouldn't need the talcum powder. (laughs) Man, they used talcum powder for everything back then. They sure did. And it worked. It worked, folks. It worked. We got to get back on the talcum powder standard. (laughs) (laughs) The talcum standard. (laughs) Mel loved it, though, and he made it do it on film, despite Marty and Gene both being like, I don't think that this is a good joke. (laughs) But it is. They were wrong, and he was right. It's very funny. In the back of the wagon, we also meet lab assistant Inga, who promptly invites Frankenstein for a roll in the hay as they make their way to the castle, where they're greeted by Frau Blucher. (laughs) Mel said in the commentary that he's the guy who did the wolf howl for the their wolf joke. And then oh, he replicated wow. it. Yeah. He did a good job. Yeah. So he's actually in the movie one more time with another sound effect that I'll, uh, I'll point out. <gasps> a little tease for the <laughs> listeners at I home. guess I'll stick around. Yeah. <laughs> roll, who's that Pokemon? <laughs> <laughs> People had gotten this far and were like, I'm kind of on the fence. But now that I know they're going to reveal... Mel Brooks's other vocal cameo. The second sound, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll stick around. <laughs> Blucher means glue. And most people say that that's why the horse is winning every time her name is said. But Mel was like, I see people saying this. It's not true. We didn't know that when we wrote it. I just like the name of the Prussian general at Waterloo. <laughs> Incredible, incredible. He says, I like that it makes us seem smart, but it wasn't what we were going for. That's wonderful. You got to just lean into it, Mel. Don't ever admit that. (laughs) I also, I love Blucher, Frau Blucher here, because not only is Cloris Leachman just so, so funny, but she also is kind of the most important character in the story. She is. She's the one who prods him to reclaim his heritage, to redeem the family name. She creates the scenario where everyone can find their true love yeah it's she is the most important character and and Cloris Leachman just absolutely knocks it out of the park just delivering it with total seriousness and like yeah yeah playing it very straight is incredible yeah and she denies knowing where the Baron's private library is but on her way out we see her furtively kiss the portrait of the former (laughs) Frankenstein (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, of course the exchange with the list of drinks is a classic 
I remember being a kid and watching that scene for the first time, or actually it was probably like the 10th time, and I pointed <laughs> out to my parents, I'm like, she's on a skateboard. Listen, because wow. she's, she's holding on to the post of the bed and right. she it's part part of what's so funny is how she glides back like she goes to leave and then she glides back right. to <laughs> offer him another drink and then she glides away and then she glides back and if you listen you can actually hear the wheels of whatever she's on, either on a dolly or a skateboard and you can hear it and you can watch her step off of it when she exits the room wow that's fantastic and uh, it works it's, it's so funny and she looks like she's been slapped in the face. <laughs> he says oh God. <laughs> I'm a little tired. <laughs> that night he dreams of his grandfather. Destiny, destiny, no escaping that for me. <laughs> he is he awakes to some strange violin, which Inga points out is coming from behind the bookcase. Love a secret passageway, of course. Mm-hmm. This is a top-notch one. Very funny. Put the candle back. <laughs> <laughs> and they trace this passageway to the lab where the Baron did his experiments, although there's no sign of the musician, just Igor, who does a very funny jump at them from next to some real skulls from a lab, Mel said. Whoa! Yeah, they're grimy. Uh, <laughs> grimy and grody, even. But then it's so funny when... Marty jumps out. He's like, I ain't got nobody. <laughs> oh, my God. Just just so funny. Ugh. And they continue exploring until they find the private library where the still warm violin. Yeah. Which I don't know what that means. It's still warm. <laughs> and the smoldering cigar indicate that they just missed the mystery person leading them on. And then he pulls out. Uh, the How I Did It book by Victor, which oh clearly God. inspired O.J. Simpson's If I Did It book. <laughs> you know, he was in Naked Gun 33 and a Third, and so we know that he loves these spoof movies. Wow, wow. <laughs> we figured it out. We figured it out. out. We finally caught him. <laughs> it's his ultimate crime, yep. stealing from, from young Frankenstein. That's all he did, right? Please don't at me. <laughs> um, Frederick, he reads this book and he is shocked to realize it could work. work. <laughs> they plan to carry out the experiment. And I love this like amazing drawing that Igor does. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> With like a bag over, with like the sack over his head. Oh my gosh! Shading, blurred out. Yeah, (laughs) it's perfect. Pretty pretty good gesture. Yeah. Yeah. After they rob the grave, they run into the constable, and the physical humor of having the corpse hand out and having to pretend it's his own. It's like I'm a simple man. This is really all I need. (laughs) Who doesn't like being like slightly tricked? Like this is. What a delight. We're lo- we're still babies. We're all still babies. Yeah. It's that's fun right. to watch him use the fake hand. <laughs> He's like picking at it. It's oh like, god, oh, yeah. isn't that gross? And you can feel like in my mind, I really believe that hand is dead and I, I like picture just like a cold <laughs> hand and just like it's so uh, visceral to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. To me, it's one of the most genuinely disturbing moments of the movie when he's like picking the nails on that dead. It's hand. gross. It's yeah. really gross. Yeah. It's really gross. Also, the hand is like way bigger than it's his. It's huge <laughs> and much lighter. Yeah, yeah. Very funny stuff. The, the constable not interested though. He doesn't care. 
Igor breaks into the brain depository through their after 5 p.m. brain slot to steal Hans Delbruck, a scientist and saint. He wants to steal that brain. But he startles himself in the mirror after some thunder and lightning, and he drops it. So he grabs the next one, listed as Abby someone. Abby normal. Do not use. Do not very explicit. Do not use in experiments. Absolutely genius. It's it's like a bit clunky and completely unlikely to have ever been written, but like that was the fastest way to tell that joke and, <laughs> and it works really well. It does. It's also so funny looking at the original and seeing that like it's not that much more subtle. (laughs) (laughs) This is where they have like the like medical demonstration. And the guy is like, look at this crazy criminal brain that I'm showing everyone. (laughs) And here's how it differentiates from a normal brain. Wow. It's, it's very funny and, and very obvious, but it's a, it's a good time. The experiment commences and Frankenstein is elevated after a fun monologue. Uh, You get some good melodrama. One joke that is, purely just visual that I have not seen anyone talk about is that the third switch is labeled the works. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's very funny. And he's like, not the third switch. Not and the yeah. third switch. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And all of the uh, lightning effects are practical. looks great. Yeah. Sure. looks great. And the experiment, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to have worked. Freddy is devastated. It's so funny when it seems like he's fine at first. <laughs> then he starts to, like, choke him. Oh, my God. Freak out. I love that he's his mommy. <laughs> <laughs> the villagers are worried that the scientists all want to rule the world. And Frankenstein is just like his grandfather. And uh, the inspector says, we still have nightmares from five times before. <laughs> It's like a reference to the number of uh, adaptations, right? Yeah, it was it was the five that they went through. So there you go. And uh, Inspector Kemp is going to look into things. I love the inspector. Barely understandable. Very <sighs> funny. Also the voice of King Triton in The Little Mermaid. Wow. Yeah. How about that? I know. I know. Small world. <laughs> wow. I want to be part of that small world. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Folks, he can do Good it night. all. Good night. <laughs> Back at the castle, they discover the creature is actually alive thanks to his yummy sounds over dessert. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so funny when the creature is like, uh, what the fuck? (laughs) When Freddy is screaming out that it's alive and it like cuts to him on the table. He's like, (gasps) what the fuck is happening? It's great. He seems like a sweetie until Igor lights a match very dramatically. Mm -hmm. He freaks out and he does start choking the good doctor now until being sedated. Apparently, Peter was worried because Gene kept moving during this choking scene. And then Mel said, if he dies, he dies. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just a fact. Yeah. Hey, can't be worried about it. It's not like in the movies. You can't bring him back to life. (laughs) Sorry. And so Gene was like, all right, we got to get it for real on this next one. And that was when they buckled down. He's getting choked for a while. Uh Uh-huh, he sure is. He does the whole charades thing. Like long-form charades. (laughs) And Mel actually pointed out this scene as being pretty crucial in his mind because this is a scene that could be very scary, Mm. especially for children. But he says that by turning it into a game, it lets kids know that it's all right, that this is a funny scene instead of a scary one. That's smart. So, yeah, there you go. 
They are uh, stopped. Uh, he starts choking Igor over the brain mix-up, <laughs> which is also <laughs> funny. But they're stopped by the arrival of the inspector, seeing if Frankenstein is following in his grandfather's footsteps. And the darts game is so funny. But the inspector is placated. And folks, I warned you it was coming. Mel Brooks noise. Ah! He's the cat. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Wow. Did you know that, just get, moving on from that, bad joke did you know that they used like a like an air gun to shoot the darts so that it would hit a bullseye no that's that's great Mm -hmm. i didn't know that i do think it was funny mel pointed out that his entrance into show business was making a cat noise as sid caesar backed up on the sid caesar show and so he was saying i brought it back to my very first intro (laughs) to uh that's adorable showbiz yeah you never lose it Never lose it. And again, he recreated the noise right there on the commentary. <laughs> now, down in the lab, the good Frau frees the creature and uh, reveals herself as the Baron's girlfriend, who uses music to soothe him until a great spark from the equipment sends the monster fleeing into the rain. And there's a great scene where the creature plays with the little girl. And <laughs> <laughs> this original scene where he does kill the child. He throws her into the lake and she drowns like a fucking rock. <laughs> like a breathing, like a rock with lungs. A rock with lungs that also were made of heavy rocks. <laughs> <laughs> she goes down quick and the monster has to flee. But in this one, you know, you wonder how close is this comedy mm. going to follow that? Like, is he going to kill this kid? Yeah. And and they play with it for, for a pretty good amount of time. That tension is there. Yeah. And she's literally even like, what shall we throw in now? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. come on. Oh, it's great. It's great. And then you cut to Peter Boyle just like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Looking around. Yeah. But they get on the seesaw instead, which immediately shoots her into bed, <laughs> subverting your expectations in a nice, non-murdering way. Who doesn't love that? <laughs> Next, we get the hermit scene parody where he, he, quote, took advantage of the great Gene Hackman. Incredible scene. It's so, so good. And he took four days to shoot it instead because he was like, I just wanted to hang out with Gene Hackman. I don't blame him. It's it's so good. Yeah. It's, it's really great. It's, you know, another fun subversion where the frail hermit proves to be the dangerous one to the monster. Uh, he's pouring boiling soup in his lap. He lights him on fire. And Mel talks about how few people recognize that being Gene Hackman, because he, despite being a huge star in the French Connection, uh, had this this great beard makeup on and everything. And he said that he was desperate to do comedy and was a tennis partner with Gene Wilder, the two Genes playing tennis. Wow. And uh, and so he said, hey, I want to do some comedy. And Gene said, great news, pal. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked out great because it really is a, a, an incredible scene. He does so great with it. I was going to make espresso. <laughs> That was one of the more quoted scenes in my in my house growing up. <laughs> the monster is finally captured by the gang, though, after they lure him with the violin. And Freddy says, I'm going in there and I'm going to convince this creature that he is loved, even at the cost of my own life. And here is where the movie's creator creation theme advances once more. Because first, he confronts the physical appearance, something that people have constantly recoiled at thus far, saying that he's handsome and that people hate him because they're jealous. Look at that boyish face. Look at that sweet smile. (laughs) Which, he's right. Peter Boyle, he's a cutie in there. What a cutie. And next, he emphasizes the positive attributes of the creature's physicality. And then, he moves on to the most important part. Self-worth and inherent morality. 
And he says, you are not evil. You are good. And being treated with even the slightest amount of tenderness breaks the creature who starts to sob. And Frankenstein literally responds with parental pride. Like, he's caressing him and rocking him. He says, this is a nice boy. This is a good boy. <laughs> this, this is, is a, a mother's, mother's angel. angel. <laughs> and this is how I, I talk to my dog. To <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. And I want the world to know this is still talking to the dog once and for all and without any shame that we love him. <laughs> And so finally, he has declared his intent to become a doting father, to share in this triumph with the creature. He says, I'm going to teach you how to walk, how to speak, how to move, how to think. And together, you and I are going to make the single greatest contribution to science since the creation of fire, which, of course, alludes to the modern Prometheus title of the book, Mm. as well as the creature's initial fear. But also importantly, this allows Frankenstein to come to terms with his own generational trauma and he pronounces his name traditionally. He continues the family tree, but adjusted and stopped the cycle of abuse. We love Iris him out. <laughs> Iris <laughs> out. Movie over. <laughs> it is really great, though. I think it is a very impactful scene. It's such a divergence from the typical Frankenstein story in a way that is so sweet. And, and you know, it is tender. It is. It's something that you're like, I like seeing this sort of like redemption of what are the villains of the story. You know, like a, a monster and the mad scientist who yeah. made him. Yes. It redeems them in a way that is great since we've been on their side in the movie. Yeah. And hearing him say, my name is Frankenstein is like so <laughs> emotional. I mm-hmm. I feel, and it's not just because I had PMS when I watched it, but I did tear up when I when he said it because I was just like really I was forcing myself to watch it like with you know with an eye for specifics, and yeah, he just that scene like I said this is the scene that I had been waiting for any time I'd seen another adaptation or read the original book. It's like finally he he did he did right by his boy. <laughs> My boy, my little male Frankenstein. (laughs) A few short weeks later, he presents the creature by way of putting on the Ritz. (laughs) (laughs) So insane, but great. Apparently, Brooks and Wilde fought mightily over whether to include this scene or not. And Wilder was the one who really wanted it in. This was his idea. He wasn't moving an inch for like 40 minutes. And then finally, Brooks suddenly gave in. And as Wilder tells it, I had done research on this. I had gone to psychiatrists and everything, research about nerves and reflexes and how you could test them and what kind of movements would help. Wow. And I translated that into comic behavior. Wow. There you go. And and Nels just said, okay, it's in. And he said, I was stunned. Why didn't you just say that? said, I don't know. When you gave it to me and I read it, I didn't know. So I thought, let's see how hard he fights for it. Because if you had said, yeah, well, maybe not, then out. Wow. When you argued that much for it, I knew it must be right. And he was. Mel said he agreed they could at least film it and test screen. And Gene was, of course, right. Because people didn't just want a James Whale impression. They wanted to laugh, baby. Test your collaborators. That's the lesson here. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Secretly test them. (laughs) (laughs) That will never blow up. It will never backfire, and they will thank you for it. (laughs) I also 
I don't think I ever noticed Igor playing the piano before. <laughs> I don't think that one. was him, was it? I thought it was a I, little. I think it, it's him, and he has his little like wig on that he like runs over afterward. I thought it was like the little Italian guy that introduced. <laughs> Them. Was it? Maybe I'm mistaken because it looked like it was him to me this time. Call in now if you know. Yes. <laughs> the ladies are still dealing with all of the callers from before. And they're, they're trying they're to They're shrugging them at me. They don't know how to answer all these phones. <laughs> also, the ladies are my cats. <laughs> so they're really having difficulty. <laughs> we asked too much of them. <laughs> A footlight explodes and the and the creature is thrown off, and I I love when Freddy starts tapping again with no music. Oh my and he's gosh! Like, Are you trying to make me look like a fool? <laughs> Incredible! <laughs> I think it's so funny when everyone starts to boo because like this erased it all, despite him not even being really that upset. It doesn't matter that he brought a guy to life. <laughs> With electricity, they're just like, oh no, that's this sucks now. Yeah, something exploded on stage and he got a little upset. <laughs> Confirmation bias, this guy sucks. <laughs> they capture him and chain him up, though, to Frederick's distress. He says, I just need to equalize the imbalance in his cerebral spinal fluid, damn it. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Put some talcum powder in there. <laughs> Sprinkle some talcum powder into the zipper that's in his neck. It'll be great. Inga says she wishes that she could give him a little piece, and it finally clicks for him, and they have sex on the raised lab table. Although this also does work as the homophone piece with an IE instead of an EA, which does allude to the solution later as well, where he literally mm. gives a piece, can give you some piece of me kind of thing. Elizabeth arrives. So funny when he introduces her to Inga as his financier. Incredible. Incredible. (laughs) I'm just going to keep saying it. This is my financier, Elizabeth. (laughs) Finance. The creature is being tortured with matches by his jailer. So he breaks free and and he kills this jailer. And Mel in the commentary was like, we realized we had gotten this far in and the creature had not killed anybody yet. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to have one. Wow. And uh, so it's this guy. And the town forms a mob. And I, uh, a riot is an ugly thing. And I think it is just about time <laughs> that we had, had one. <laughs> Elizabeth sends Freddie away. Extremely funny scene, especially at the end when he's responding with gritted teeth. <laughs> Mel said that he interpreted no tongues literally, and that's what he's doing there. Oh, that's really funny. <laughs> no tongues. <laughs> but her singing before bed attracts the monster. And the fright gives her white streaks of hair, like the classic look of the bride, and he abducts her to a nearby barn. Another underrated joke from this movie, in my opinion, is when the mob is walking through the foggy woods and a guy just, like, bumps into the tree because they can't see. (laughs) Oh, I missed that. Oh, it's funny. It's very good. Next time you watch it, keep an eye out for it. Yeah, I will. I will. And the monster shows her his enormous Schwanstucker, (laughs) and she protests, but when he goes for it, she starts to sing a sweet mystery of life. <laughs> Madeline Kahn said that it was her idea to use this song instead of Cheek to Cheek because she first wanted a song that started with a noise that could be a scream to A, make it feel more real for the humor, but also to communicate that she is deeply attracted to him but feels the sexual entrapment of society's restrictions. So there you go. I'd say that all came across. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I think she nailed it. Genius, like we said. 
Mm-hmm. Funny heart-shaped iris out, which I think is very good. And they're in the post-coil <laughs> glow six round. Oh, man. It's classic stuff, folks. And uh, he is drawn away by the music. And she says, you men are all like seven or eight quick ones. And you're off with the boys to boast and brag. <laughs> you know, similar to the, the bride in The Bride of Frankenstein... Madeline Kahn doesn't have a ton of screen time in this movie, but boy, does she make the most of the screen time she, she has. She really does. She just yeah. bends the whole movie to her will. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I, like, you, I just, you remember her parts so clearly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that that's just her being a genius, you know? In in Blazing Saddles, like the I'm so tired scene. Is like, <laughs> so good. It's so good. And it's truly like one of the first things I think of when I think of that movie. So yeah. She's really an, an incredible talent. Once in a lifetime kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the monster climbs up the wall, the castle wall, all by himself. Good lad. <laughs> Strong boy. That's right. They enact a transference to save the monster. More than just the loving words like before, Freddy puts his money where his mouth is. And it's true that he is sacrificing part of himself for the good of the creature, but he also gets something in return. And the villagers burst in, and the monster wakes up to newfound articulateness. And he defends his creator in a way, like we said, not done by the other creations and adaptations, because there has never been this pivot before. Mm -hmm. So now that we get this, he says, as long as I can remember, people have hated me. They looked at my face and my body, and they ran away in horror. In my loneliness, I decided if I could not inspire love, which is my deepest hope, I would instead cause fear. I live because this poor, half-crazed genius has given me life. He alone held an image of me as something beautiful. And then, when it would have been easy enough to stay out of danger, he used his own body as a guinea pig to give me a calmer brain. And Brooks commented here. He said, This creator loves his creature so much that he risks his sanity and his life to help his brainchild survive. And in essence, Brooks has transformed the heartless, cold, and calculating researcher that we've seen over and over and over again Mm -hmm. into a devoted parent who delights in the accomplishment of his offspring's talent and intelligence. And in exchange, what he gets is not only emotional depth, but as we see, he even becomes an improved lover. Because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because the creature the creature has donated part of his dong, basically. Uh, as we see in the conclusion, where Frankenstein has married Inga instead of Elizabeth. And we have no idea how bad he was to begin with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's safe to say he was changed for the better. <laughs> right. And all it took was to, you know, a balancing of cerebral f- spinal fluid. I'm always saying that. Throw a little talcum powder. In yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. Modern medicine can't beat this. <laughs> Doctors hate this one trick. <laughs> Doctors say, yeah, go on hymns.com and get <laughs> cerebral spinal fluid adjustment. It comes with a free talcum box. <laughs> a box. That's how talcum powder comes, right? Comes in, a in a box, box. yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like baking soda. <laughs> Arm and hem. It might be. It might be. I'm joking, but it could be. I don't know how it's sold. I don't know. I think it's mostly in like shakers, like baby powder kind of stuff. I I think I'm just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I might just have to take the L on this one. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, rather than remaining bitter antagonists, we get this union of maker and creation now sharing parts of each other, establishing a union that benefits both of them and making this a truly unique 
adaptation Ha-ha! of the story. That's right. <laughs> and now, Carly, Ugh. we've reached the part of the episode oh, where gosh. we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, mm. but is in fact the best. the best horror movie ever made. Yeah. And I'm going to let you start. Well, it's one of the few I've seen. Great reason. So that alone puts it in a, a pretty elite standing. I think, so I, I've been talking about the creative process a lot with friends of mine who also do similar work. And <clears throat> there's this idea that what audiences really want is something that is familiar, but different. So it's it this movie, I think, exemplifies that because it's a parody, which that's like the whole art is taking something familiar and doing something different with it. But it's just, there's so much, there's so much love and attention to detail. And it's, in my opinion, just one of the best movies ever made. I also think it's one of the best comedies ever made. It's so tight. Apparently there was a much longer cut of the film that did very poorly with audiences and they cut it down to like 90 something minutes. And that extra editing pass created one of the one of the tight truly I think one of the tightest comedy movies I've I can think of there isn't a single scene in that movie where I'm like checking out even even scenes where you're like oh maybe this is a little boring like when the council organizes to talk about what are we going to do about Frankenstein if you're at all getting lost then in comes the inspector you meet the inspector and he's funny in a way that's different from the other characters it's just like and to talk about, so I don't find this a scary movie, just to be very clear. Um, but I think what's interesting here is like, how are we defining horror? This is clearly a movie that is honoring horror tropes and pulling references from very specific horror movies. And it's in mm-hmm. the trappings of a horror movie. So I guess by that definition, I think... It does. It, it's a beautiful horror movie. All of the sets are gorgeous. There's so many practical in-camera effects because they didn't do CGI in 1974. The lighting. They had really. The, if you go online and you read Hirschfeld's, the cinematographer's oral history of making this movie, he talks about how in order to balance the needs of like the comedy aspects of this film with the needs of the horror film you have. So you have like setting mood, which is like a very horror thing and then clarity of expression, which is a very Mm -hmm. comedy thing and how specifically he had to like light different scenes and how the needs of each scene really had to be approached scene by scene. You couldn't paint with a bit with a broad brush in this film. Like, so just like the, the craft that went into this, movie I think alone is worth celebrating but the fact that on top of that you can have something that still feels really spontaneous and really funny and really alive is so remarkable because any process like filmmaking that like requires so many refining passes to it you can lose a little bit of that magic with each pass but I actually think they just honed it with each you know take so, yep. yeah, I think it's just a beautifully crafted movie. It <laughs> solves the major problems I have with the story. It's so funny. Um, and I want to talk about game a little bit because this this movie has a lot of really strong games. So in long form improv, and I would say this applies to sketch comedy too, game refers to basically like what's interesting or funny about a scene 
or sometimes a character when you're talking about character game. And the characters in this movie all have really strong games. Like Igor's game is one of them is that he keeps hiding the hump. Which side is which side his hump is on? Freddie will go to pat him on the shoulder, and the hump will be in a different spot. That's one of Igor's character games. Then you have the game of every time Frobluka's name is spoken out loud, you hear horses whinnying. The game of they can't understand what the inspector is saying. There's a lot of strong character stuff, and then there's also really funny just pattern stuff. The scene at the train station. Oh, you can't touch my nails. Oh, you can't touch my hair. Oh, don't touch my dress. Like, that's a pattern game. And it's all just really strong and sharp. So just, yeah, just everything is so, so masterfully done. I just love it. I just love it. Hell yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made. I win the show! (laughs) You won the show. Incredible. (laughs) It's so fantastic. And, you know, at the beginning, we talked about how this isn't something necessarily that either one of us is like, oh, yeah, classic horror thing. But Uh it is so deft at doing so many things Mm -hmm. that it sort of leaves all genre behind. Yeah. If I I don't I'm not like, oh, that's just a comedy because there's so much horror setting and romance in it. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say it's just a romance because it is so funny. Mm-hmm. It is so laugh out loud funny. And it's not just a horror movie because it is also pulling those other two elements in a way that they are given a similar amount of respect and attention as the horror elements. Yes. And so to me that does leave these genres behind in a way that creates an accessibility. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned that this is one of the few horror movies that you've seen. And I think accessibility is a huge part of being the best. And if somebody who doesn't like horror can come to this movie and have a great time laughing at it, enjoying the horror references and everything, you can't deny that as being something important. If nobody can see your movie, how can it be the best? You know, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. And Mel is the most proud of this movie. I think correctly. Deservedly so. so yeah. Yeah. He set out to make a period movie. He definitely conjures the feeling of Wales Direction to me. So it's a success in its emulation of the style of the past. Mm -hmm. It transports the audience in the way that he was transported when he was a kid. And, you know, it's one of the greatest comedic ensembles of all time, in my my opinion. So strong. Every single person. All the extras, too. Every person that is heard or seen on camera is doing something really wonderful and specific. Yeah. Yeah. And Gene in particular, I mean, we have shouted everybody out, but he's so naturalistic in his, in his performance. And then when it escalates, it feels so shocking and funny and great because he feels so normal a lot of the time. Yes. I think he's such a captivating hero in this movie. And he just believes his character so much. He's never selling like, and that's not necessarily common. And sometimes it's what you want in a Mel Brooks comedy is like for a character to sell out their deal for a joke or just, you know, just like wink at the camera. And I think it's really important that Gene Wilder didn't do that. In fact, I read that the reason Mel Brooks does not play a large part in this movie is because Gene Wilder was like, I'm not going to do this if you show up because when you're in your movies, 
you have this habit of like breaking the fourth wall and winking at the audience and it needs to this can't that cannot happen in this movie and I think he was so right it would have compromised what they were working to build especially in a horror thing where like tension is such a big part of it is this going to happen this thing that I'm afraid of is this thing that I've seen before going to happen like how are they going to change it I know they're going to change it like if they're just breaking the fourth wall constantly and winking at Mm -hmm. you it's just not that tension will never build you can't tear the screen that way yeah and even if Mel was like oh I promise I won't like wink at the camera or anything (laughs) just his presence there Right. Is enough to do it. Yes. You go, oh, is that Mel Brooks? Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be waiting for it. It's again, it's not to say that you never want that. Sometimes it's exactly what you want. Sometimes it's delicious and funny and great. Mm-hmm. Sure. But it just wouldn't have it wouldn't have worked here. Right, right. Whereas Gene has a very easy presence, you know, he <sighs> lets the the scene build around him. When I was watching it last night, I was like, it's so interesting that he chose to go to pursue comedy because I'm watching him here. And he could have been like an Errol Flynn. You know, he could have, I think he could have been like a a straight movie star. Yeah. And then I read up a little bit about him and he, he, speaking of Errol Flynn, was like a trained fencer, was a very accomplished fencer and was even a fencing instructor. There you go. For a little period of time. So yeah, he has that old Hollywood kind of romance feel to him. And the fact that he can also do comedy, I think he's just... So dreamy in this movie, I really do. I just love him. He's great. He's great. Yeah, I I totally agree. And you know, I actually in the recording, I saw I watched a TV adaptation where it was like a recording of a stage version of Death of a Salesman, and he is the neighbor's son in that play. Okay. And he, when he like grows up and, and Willie Loman comes to see him, and he's suddenly a success, and his sons are not successful and he goes like how could it be nobody liked you (laughs) and like there's a similar like wry sweetness Mm -hmm. to him even in this very serious role where or a very dramatic role i should say because he was very clear in the interviews that he takes every role seriously yeah the comedy ones so even in this dramatic role you know you can see the spark of of Gene in there, and and I think that it's an undeniable presence that he has, and and yeah, he he is a dreamboat in this damn movie. He He's is got a slick little mustache yeah, going look at there. Those eyelashes <laughs> for days. Oh my gosh. And I th- I think that this this last story from Mel kind of sums up why this is the best to me, where he says, "We enjoyed the making of Young Frankenstein so much, Gene and I." It was the end of shooting, and we were doing the last scene in the movie in the bedroom. And Gene was all alone there, and there was only one light on this beautiful satin bed sheet, and he was sitting there with his head down, and he said, Come in, I want to talk to you. And I came in, and I sat down on the bed next to him, and I said, What is it? I'm just getting ready to light this last scene. And he said, Can't we create one or two more scenes just for insurance? And I said, We don't need the insurance. We did everything right. And he said, well, the truth is, I've never been so happy in my life. And I really don't want to lose this set and this place. I love it here in Transylvania. Boom. Boom. It totally comes through that they love what they're doing there. You know, the stories of how much they all made each other laugh. At one point during the commentary, Mel, like, implies Terry and Gene were, like, genuinely having sex all over the sets (laughs) and stuff. And then he, like, chuckled to himself. But just, like, the idea that this cast is so perfectly meshed together 
comedically, romantically, in terms of having that come across on stage, their sensibilities are so aligned Mm -hmm. in a way that just creates a movie that draws you in in a way that is very difficult to do and impossible to replicate because it's the best horror movie ever Ever made. made. (laughs) Ever. It could work. Carly, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank this you was for so me. much fun. Yes, please tell the people where they can check out your work. Ah, well, you can hear me on other podcasts. <laughs> I am a cast member of both Rue Tales of Magic and Oh These, those stars of space, both put out by Fortunate Horse. And it is just uh, such wonderful cast of friends that all grew up. Grew up through the improv scene in uh, in New York together. We have a great time. Um, super fun podcasts for your ears. I am also an animation artist, so you can see my designs in seasons one and two of Bird Girl, which are, I hope, still on HBO Max. Who knows? Thank you, Discovery <laughs> Plus. And yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Whirring Blender. There you go. Check her out. A lot of great stuff. Those podcasts are great. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Instagram and Letterboxd, but also, more importantly, the Patreon. If you're really enjoying this show, you can check out the Patreon for just a couple bucks a month, and you get all kinds of goodies, like commentaries and bonus episodes. The last couple things that we did on there, uh, Michael Swaim from Cracked and I talked about Synecdoche, New York. Mike Mitchell from The Doughboys talked about The Blob 88. I mean, just all kinds of really great stuff. If you are coming to here as a fan of the Fortunate Horse podcasts, many of them have had main feed episodes, and Branson even came back for a bonus episode where we talked about the 13 best animated horror shorts from 1929 to 1953. That rules! Yeah, if that doesn't sound like a good time, then I don't know what does. I can't talk to you. (laughs) Don't don't talk to me if you don't think that's fun. So check that out if you're enjoying the show and uh, rate and review if you don't want to spend any money because that's a free thing to do (laughs) and it does help the show. That's it, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.